five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. That was uh, 311, and apparently we got no chat today. Let me uh, find out what happened here and reboot this thing. Give me one sec. Give me one sec. You know, there are times where you just, it says uh, copy embed code, show viewer chat, show viewer chat. You got to trust your instincts. Let's try it again. And let go of the past. Let me update this bad boy. Uh, let's see what we got here. Give me one sec, boys and girls. Uh, uh. Update. Hold on. What do we got? Come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. For all of you who don't know, we're having an issue with the viewer chat today. Why can't I update this? This is weird. This is weird. Give me one sec. Let's see. Oh, this is real strange. It's not even allowing me to update the, the post. Let's do edit. Let's try it again. Let's uh, throw in the uh, show viewer chat. Preview embed code. Here's the chat. It turned on. I turned it on. Oh, thanks, Steve. Thanks for turning it on. Let me see here. Let me go back into my website. Uh, uh, let me view the post. There it is. All right, we're good. We're good. Welcome to the show. Did you guys like that jam? 311 that goes out to uh, Lynette. In the wilds of Oregon, the road warrior. The reason I played that is uh, I think uh, the lead singer, the guy with the blonde hair, I think it's his birthday today. Nick Hexum. Do you like the background? Oh, yeah. We're doing a little uh, 
Doing a little tiki today. I was in a tiki vibe, even though it's not tiki music. Um, but I like that. I remember. I remember when that song first came out, and it was making the rounds in MTV. I'm like, man, it's a catchy little tune. Love the bass line. Um, you know, got got kind of a ska feel to it. You had the, you had the guys toasting. By the way, that's what they used to call rapping. We'll call it toasting down in Jamaica. Jamaica. Toaster's delight. How is everybody? I hope uh, you are having a great morning, great day. Perhaps if you're over the international dateline, a great evening. Wouldn't it be nice to be there right now? Just hanging out. Hanging out. You know, I don't know. Not really a drinker, but I, I might have a pina colada in a place like this. Pina colada down by the shore and some coconut shrimp. Pina colada, coconut shrimp in some, some slaw. Maybe some sweet potato fries. I think that'd be perfect. Who's ready to join me? Who's ready to go there? One of these days, man. One of these days, we're going we're gonna to have that. We're going to have that. I think the theme this summer we did we did yacht last summer. I think this summer we might we might do lounge. We might do lounge this summer. Tiki lounge. Uh retro future space age lounge. What else we have? Down tempo lounge. I think it might be a lounge summer just to bring in some cool vibes. All right. Welcome to 15 minutes of flame. If you're listening over on the uh, podcast side of things, we had a bit of a uh, snafu at the beginning of the show with the chat and uh, the God of thunder helped us out there by kicking, kickstarting it. Uh, we're going to, we're going to get into part two from yesterday's show. Although of course we'll be a little divergent as we, wind and wend our way towards our subject and the uh, headline or the the title of the show in case you're wondering what the thumbnail is about um the thumbnail is an image of an american rocker by the name of joe bryath and I'm going to get into Joe Bryant's story just a little bit. And the thing that interests me kind of more about his story is um, the almost fetish-like relationship and connection he had with certain people and, and the amount of money and the amount of effort that was used to break him as a, a kind of rock pop icon. He was sort of, I would call him the American Bowie in a lot of ways. It's a very interesting story. I think it, it kind of folds into what we're talking about 
in terms of the big picture with how we got here. And you can see the marketing effort around this person um, who has achieved cult-like status. We'll get, in, we'll get into his story today and why I think it may not necessarily be important to the overall picture, but I think it gives us some insight into um, the commercialization and the almost fetish-like um, worship in some ways of somebody who is like openly like queer um, and ge gender bending, right? There, it was, it, it's, it, there's this piece in our society and it, and it pops up intermittently. We talked a little bit about um, Milton Berle and um, Jack Lemon and, and the, you know, we're, we're cross-dressing was, um, it was, it was made into a thing, right? We talked about Flip Wilson. Somebody brought up Flip Wilson yesterday and Geraldine. I mean, you can go all the way back to Shakespeare. And in Shakespeare, of course, there were no female actors. The, the men performed the female roles. So in all those plays, including Romeo and Juliet, you had dudes who were glammed up and uh, performing the role of a woman in those plays. So this is kind of embedded right in the psyche of the West in a lot of ways. Like, I'm not sure you really find it in other cultures. I'm not sure it's, if you were to go into, I don't know, the Dogon, you're probably not going to find a lot of that. Um, that's just off the top of my head. You're probably not going to find a lot of it in Aboriginal culture. It seems to be endemic uh, to the West in a lot of ways. And, um, I think Joe Bryant's story uh, lends itself to kind of understanding at some level, at least from an economic level, um, the investment in, in a character like him. And so I've been given a lot of thought about the whole um, trans thing and more than just the trans thing. I've been giving a lot of thought about um, being woke in the culture of grievance and, 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 and I'm going to say something. Um, and why I think, and clearly I don't agree with, uh, their, their stances. I think they're just so rigid and fixed and, and you can't, you can't even have a reasonable conversation because they're, they're embedded in, an ideological framework that doesn't allow discourse just doesn't allow discourse. So I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with it. I don't, I, I can't, I can't relate to it on that level. Um, that said, I understand to some degree, the culture of grievance, the, the trans thing is a whole other like layer to the culture of grievance, wokeism, uh, cultural Marxism. It it's it's part of the 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 contour of how this thing is evolving. It is not the centerpiece of it, but it's becoming a major, major issue. And it's it's it, you know, they use the the 
the whole idea and theory of oppression and race to get to this point. And now they're forking off from race into typology, into uh, gender, into uh, this idea that uh, that this is the new oppressed class. It's, it's almost like they've, thank you very much. You've, you've served your purpose. And now you've got to join in on the army. And Jason Whitlock has made this case that the whole, the whole, uh, the whole race issue is like a bait and switch in now inside of the black community. And he was actually, he did this thing last night on this guy Pearson, who was the, the guy that, that was in Tennessee. And he, he had the very affected voice where he sounded like Martin Luther King, you know, I'm talking about one of the guys, one of the people that got kicked out, apparently he's getting a seat back or whatever. Um, and he, ha- and he had this video of him. He went to Bowdoin. I think that's where DJ Spooky went, if I'm not mistaken. I think DJ Spooky went to Bowdoin. I could be wrong. Um, and he went to Bowdoin. And so there's a video of him where he's running for school president. And he does not sound anything like like his uh what would be a good nickname for him? Martin Luther Fling, right? He's having a fling with uh his inspired uh religiosity and the rhetoric that comes out of it. Martin Luther Fling. Uh he's not the same dude. I mean, he's sit that he, he doesn't have the same haircut. Now we sport in the fro. And when you watch the video, he's talking about spaces. They're always talking about spaces. Creating spaces. Like temporary autonomous zones. Chaz. I guess we have our space. Right? Don't we have our space? This is a space. We're creating spaces. We're creating spaces in which we can psychonavigate and communicate in ways that expand the idea of the individual and the persona to shape a new micro-collective mindset and to do it in a way where people feel free and uninhibited to share their most vital truths. That's what we're here to do. We're here to create those spaces. It's so important. And the guy, the guy sounded just like a regular dude. And he's talking about bringing the left together and the right together. We have to find the sweet middle where we can create a space where we can have a dialogue about these very important issues that need to be discussed. They always need to be fucking discussed, don't they? Aren't we over like discussing enough? Enough of discussing the issues. Jesus. But anyway, what Jason uh, brought up, which I think is a valid point, is that now if you're somebody who has uh, been on the, uh, the gravy train and you've been out there, you know, fighting against systemic racism, 
that's not your battle anymore. No, your battle is much more inclusive than that. Your battle is not only fighting systemic racism, it's fighting systemic peopleism, right? I mean, this is the new battleground. So you see these guys out there now, like this guy Pearson, who was um, doing Martin Luther fling uh, in Tennessee. He's talking about trans people. He wasn't talking about trans people before. So the marching orders, and Jason has brought this up, the marching orders are out there. It's like you talk about this and you stay on the gravy train. You don't talk about this and you're off the gravy train. You're canceled. So they keep upping the ante and it's like, oh shit. Well, I, I guess I got to stay in the gravy train. I guess I got to keep uh, making, you know, and it's not just, uh, you know, black males. It's kind of an interesting term, black males. Like, hey, we're going to blackmail your ass. You talk about this or else <laughs> you're, lo you're losing your cush position. You're, you're, you're losing your, uh, your spot on HBO by Monty Jones. Is, it, is he on HBO or Showtime? I forget. Anyway, um, but it's not just them. I mean, we could see this. These become the talking points. And then all of a sudden, top down, they get the new talking points. They get the new marching orders. And all of a sudden, this is what the dialogue is about. This is what's being shared in the spaces. And they and they did a bait and switch. It's like, okay, we're gonna get we're gonna get you engaged in being inclusive when it comes to race, right? CRT. And now all of a sudden that's being pushed to the to the fringe a little bit, right? It's being pushed to the fringe. Or at least it's being it's being pushed to the back of the theater. It's being pushed to the back of the bus. And who's in the front of the bus now? Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney just had his celebration of 365 days of being a woman. Like, what was that? Like fucking Carnegie Hall? Like, what is going on with Dylan Mulvaney? By the way, I looked at Dylan Mulvaney's chart. I'm not going to get into it today. I'll get into it at a future date, though. Um, when you look at his chart, it's, you get to see some things. You get Dylan Mulvaney has been turned into a fetish. And when I get into the story of Jabriath, Dylan Mulvaney is the downstream manifestation of Jabriath, which I'll, I'm going to share with you and I'll show you what I mean. Um, the other thing that I found out about, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, and this is an interesting piece and I, and I, and I can't quite connect the dot directly, but I'll, I'll attempt to connect that dot. Dylan Mulvaney is from San Diego. Do you know who else is from San Diego or more importantly, Rancho Santa Fe? Alyssa Hirescheid. They're both from San Diego. Now, the question is, did Alyssa Hirescheid know Dylan Mulvaney before this whole Bud Light thing. That's, a, that's an important question. And has Dylan Mulvaney been scripted? I mean, we, I mean the whole, you know, he was an out-of-work actor, basically. And, and 
he decided that he was going to do this thing. That he was going to, I guess, take some estrogen and have some little boobies um, and not uh, not forsake his junk. He still has junk. And he's, he was going to play this role, right? And the whole idea is that this was scripted out. It's like performance art. And I guess my question is, is did he come up with this on his own? Or was this cultivated? Was there a plan for Dylan Mulvaney? Because when you look at his trajectory and you look at all the sponsors, which again, I I think if I haven't done it before, I'll, I'll show you today how many companies are working and sponsoring with Dylan Mulvaney. It's enormous. I mean, it's, well, when I say Norris, I, I'm, I, he's got at least a dozen sponsors. How does this happen? Why does it happen? Who's behind it? Is it just the wacky creative impulse of an individual who feels like they're well, just depressed and they've got to let something out, right? They got to let something out. So we're going to get into that today. And look, I understand the culture of grievance. I get it, right? I get it. You look around and things don't add up. They they just don't add up. You look at a system. And I would say that, you know, at one point in time, you know, we really had a meritocracy here. By the dint of your own labor, uh, by the application of your, your own will that you could build something, you could create something. There wasn't somebody, uh, you know, in your community or, you know, you didn't have a warlord basically running by every other day or every other week to take your shit. Right. I mean, that's an extreme version of it, but that's, you, it, here in this country, we were afforded the opportunity to one own property. Big deal. It's a big deal to own property. Not only own property, but also pass down generational wealth. That was almost unheard of. If you lived in a feudal system and you had something, when you died, who do you think got it? Wasn't your wasn't your kids? No, siree. It was the Baron, the Duke, the Lord, the Prince, the King, right? Those were the people that got your shit when you died. You didn't, you weren't able to pass it on. So these are real distinctions about this American story. And there's a reason why people wanted to come here because they wanted a piece of that. They realized that if that, they put in the effort if they joined the right gangs ran the right scams which is another part of the american story i'm sorry it is part of the american story like gang life is a big part of the american story al capone looked around he says i'm poor as fuck and i need to get out of this fucking poverty and i don't have time i don't have time to do what these other people 
have done before me. I got to get there and I got to get there now. And that is not an uncommon attitude. And so, you know, I'm diverging a little bit here, but that's, that's part of the underbelly of the American story is, is the crime story. It's the gang story. And it's how people accumulated wealth very quickly. And they did it because they bonded together. There was usually an ethnic bond that connected them. You had Italian mobs, you had Irish mobs. Um, you even had English mobs. Go watch Gangs of New York, which is a flawed movie. I hate Leonard DiCaprio. I can't stand Leonard DiCaprio. It's like, you want to ruin a movie, put fucking Leonard DiCaprio in the movie. With the exception of maybe the Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. I think him playing a stutter. He does stutter, by the way. I think that he, I think he was playing himself in that movie. Anyway, um, just look at it. You know, you have you have this, these gangs, and they they come together and they pool their resources, and in in many instances, right, they're gonna just use whatever they can as quickly as they possibly can. So roll the dice, right? That's a part. The other part of the story are there are people who are hardworking, you know, the sweat of the brow and put the time and the effort and the labor in. I, I live in an area of Texas where pretty much true. Right? You had the Germans that came here. I guess you might call them a gang, but they didn't do anything illegal per se. Right. Even when they doubled the Comanches, at least in Fredericksburg, they had a peaceful treaty with the Comanches. Wasn't always the case. The Comanches would steal their kids. Right, but they weren't involved in crime. They were just involved in building something, right? So it's part of the American story. That part of the American story is evaporating very quickly, right before our very eyes. Housing prices still continue to be way out of sight. You have interest rates that are way out of sight. The market, the real estate market is just uh, frozen. It's constipated. There's that. We're watching the decline of the dollar. We're watching the decimation of our systems. Seems like every other week there's either a food processing plant that's been blown up or uh, we've had a derailment of a train that's got some kind of a toxic chemical. There's been a fire at a refinery, right? All these things add up. They all add up. And now we're talking, now Gavin Newsom is talking about reparations in California. I think it's going to happen. I think I think if you're in California, you better be prepared to um, have some of your tax dollars going into these reparations. And the only reason why I think it's going to happen is Gavin Newsom's going to run for president, and he's going to do it in California, and he's going to make that part of his platform when he runs for president. He is going to run for president. So that's a whole other thing, right? We're seeing all these things happen. In the idea of the American dream, the place that, that, that people were literally like dying, absolutely dying to get here. To this day, they still do. I mean, you get people coming up from the South, and, and it's not always an easy track. And they're willing to sacrifice a lot in order to get to this country so that they could have a, quote, unquote, better chance at living and life in general. It's still a part of the fabric of the American dream, but that fabric is worn and thin and threadbare. 
And so when you look around at the culture of grievance, you understand where they're coming from. I completely understood when uh, Occupy Wall Street happened. I got it, right? I got it. They're looking around. Look at these motherfuckers. You know, although they said the 1%, I think really what they should have been talking about was like maybe the eighth of 1% who control an enormous amount of wealth. And I don't have a problem with that as long as people have a remotely decent chance of getting a foothold on the mountain and getting to the next level. But that's really hard now. And we're starting to stare down AI, automation, and there's this creeping sense of this existential dread that is just hanging like the fog off the coast, right? It's coming in and people can feel it. And so, you know, what we're seeing with um, the culture of grievance is an accumulation of whatever people are feeling about this mostly oppressive energy that is settling down upon what was once the greatest country on this planet. For all of its warts, and trust me, I've I've I have no illusion about some of the shit this country's been involved with. But it's a risk reward kind of operation, right? I mean, where else are you gonna be able to kind of get a foothold in? You can't do it in Europe. It's it's the, the tax structures in Europe are off the charts. People talk about the European way, the continental way. I've been listening to Douglas Murray uh lately he's actually really bright has a lot of good things to say you know but if you really look at this whole idea of kind of the european tradition and standard moving forward it's hard you can't get a foothold in a place like you're very difficult you have socialism you know up the fucking wazoo in, in europe and they, they're taking 60 to 70 percent of your tax dollars right that's just the nature of the beast in europe so this is it. This is the place, risk reward. And there's trade-offs here. There's a, but now the trade-offs are starting to diminish. And there there's there's less reward in uh, who's bearing the burden of the risk. It's the everyday person. At some point in time, the whole thing is just going to collapse and they're going to be responsible for it. They're going to carry the burden of the risk. It's never the people that have um the least to lose it's the people that have the most to lose and so i understand this i understand the culture of grievance i get it how it's directed and weaponized that's a whole other thing because clearly it has been directed it has been weaponized now let's get into the trans thing a little bit so when i think about the trans thing what do, what do i think of when i think about the trans you know what i think of? i think of freedom in a weird way, right? In a weird way, like these are people that say, well, fuck everything else. I just want to be free, right? I just want to be, free. if I want to be a man, I'll be a man. If I want to be a woman, I'll be a woman. I just want to be. And when you get into, you know, the multiplicity of all the gender bullshit, right? And I want to identify as a Dalmatian or um, I want to identify as a, as a semi-sentient, uh, uh, you know, sex bot or whatever right what are all these people really attempting to do they're attempting to experience some degree of freedom and they they don't understand it at that level they just don't understand 
all they understand is, again, the oppressive weight, the oppressive weight that is just bearing down upon them, right? The gravity of the situation that we're in. And then, of course, yesterday we looked at the xenoestrians. Today we'll look at phthalates. That's part of the discussion. But, you know, these are people that are being, they're, they're being, in a lot of ways, again, just like how the, the culture of grievance, race and oppression has been weaponized, this whole idea of people wanting to be free has been weaponized as well. They're offering, they're offerings, they're dangling, right? They're dangling the, the, uh, the, the blue pill. Here you go. Here you go. You want to be free? Take this. You'll, 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 you'll be in the matrix and you'll be free in the matrix. This is what Matt Walsh was talking about to some degree yesterday as he was covering uh, Dylan Mulvaney's. I think it was Carnegie Hall. I think Dylan Mulvaney had a big celebration at fucking Carnegie Hall. So the idea there is that they want to be free. So you have one group, the culture of grievance that understands that the American dream is kind of out of their reach in a lot of ways. And I don't blame them. I don't, honestly, I don't blame them because of the way the game has been rigged. You have another group. They just want to be whatever the fuck they want to be. So they're, they're trying to escape too. They're trying to escape the oppression as well. Now, are they gamed or are they targeted? Are they weaponized? You bet. Absolutely. And, and, and often with tragic results, especially on the gender side, because once you supposedly claim your freedom and you do the things that they actually want you to do, you ain't coming back. You're never coming back. Those decisions are permanent and damaging. So ultimately, it's a false freedom. But I understand it. I understand the genesis behind it. I understand the, what did the, what did the Germans call it? The Weltschong? The Weltschong behind it? I get it. I totally get it. But it's not the answer. It's not the answer. Neither of them have the answer. And honestly, you know, I could probably spend about an hour here trying to break down what the answer is. It's much more complicated than uh, maybe a two or three minute soundbite. But things are getting challenging. The money thing is going to start to really hit people. The, the, you're going you're gonna to see people really start to struggle with money and their budgets. And I can tell you right now, you know, I'm a working astrologer. And uh, I'm not getting as many readings as I used to. I still get them. Don't get me wrong. I'm working. I have, I have no problem with that. I enjoy it. But people are watching their money. They're, they're counting their pennies. Because they may not have any pennies to count when uh, Fed now comes into play. There's that, there's that part of it, too. There's this looming sense over our heads that this reality that we've been a part of, Right, this this collective story that we've shared since uh, Pluto was at 27 degrees Capricorn in 1776, that that's coming to an end. And we are in the end times. And a lot of what we're seeing are end times behaviors. 
And in some regard, I'm willing to cut people some slack because I get it. I understand that there are canaries in the coal mine and we're witnessing them. On the other hand, turning it into um, a preferred lifestyle and weaponizing them against the masses is unacceptable because that is manipulative. And that's taking advantage of people's uh, vulnerabilities, root needs, and all the things that go along with being a human. All right. Kind of a long intro today. I said a lot to say. Let me get into a little true hem science. I got to get into Chataria uh, because you've been here and I need to just connect with you guys. Let's do a little true hem science visual. So if you are new to the show, and I hope you are new, we always like new people. If you're new to the show, we have one sponsor and it is True Hemp Science. And it is probably one of the best purveyors of organic CBD that I've run across. And again, I'm, I am not an expert. I haven't tried hundreds of different varieties of CBD, but I've tried a few. And once I got here, I stopped looking. It's like, this stuff is good. It's good. And we're dealing with things like inflammation, right? uh, saturating your cells, cellular lubrication, helping with your sleep, with the, uh, the sleep gummies. A lot of other things here that are available. They got a great, Chris has a great, great fulvic acid which uh, I highly recommend. So truehemscience.com, if you're into the idea of CBD and it adding to the quality of your life, and trust me, it will, this is, this is your one-stop shop. And all you got to do is spend $100 or more, type in 15MINS, 15MINS on checkout, and you'll get free product. It'll load you up. You get free goodies. Peachy, you want some CBD? You want some pet sounds? She's funny. Spend $150 or more and guess what you get? You get free shipping. How about that? True Hem Science. Don't sleep on them. All right. Let's uh, let's get into the chat here. Let me see what we got. Let's see who's here. Harry Bowie. Uh, let's go to the top. I'm a little late to the party. We got Sony at 918. What's going on? So back there, that that direction. It seems like a long time ago. Let's see. Uh, we got Sony. CC Jones. Hey, Fran. What's happening? Primo. What's going on? Christine. C. Pines. Ropes and Pittons. Or Pythons. Bluey Rocks. I can't even manage to get to Texas. Queen Lisa's here. Hey, what's going on, Queen Lisa? Scrubbies doing her name name check. Always good. Tamara's always good for that. What's going on, Tamara? Uh, let's see. Lisa W's here. Catherine Kramer. What's happening, KK? Wendy says back in the house. Julie Sunshine, triple three, making some sauerkraut. Good for the gut. Hanging laundry's here. Eric E. Bounce it over from uh, the uh, Astro Weather. Good to see you, Erica E. 
uh, the aforementioned Harriet Bowie. Uh, let's see, all cultures, Chinese opera. The pitfalls of exalting personas. I like that, Sea Pines. People uh, won't inconvenience themselves to live in service. What does that mean to live in service? In service to what? Service to God. Service to creation. I think there's some truth to that. Uh, let's see. Trans is the cult burlesquing of humanity, or at least America, the West before the sacrifice. Pithy and true, Mr. Thor. They want tax breaks for saying, I care. That's true. Absolutely. Uh, let's see. Soap opera, nations and neuroses. Uh, Cremo says, I think men looking, acting like women is symptomatic societies, not understanding in general. It's the male energy folding in on itself. I think that's true. And I, I, and I, it, look, this is another part of the equation. If, if you go back to, well, let's go back to when uh, Gloria Steinem hit the scene. And then all the ensuing messages that come down through feminism. What's the messaging been? Men are toxic. Boys are, are trouble and problematic. We got we to gotta rope them in with Adderall. We got to rope them in with uh, lithium or Xanax or Prozac, right? The, in a lot of ways, the explosion of trans from the, the male to the female is an, a manifestation on the attack on men. And it's systemic. I mean, again, we got into the xenoestrogens yesterday. Hopefully, if we have time, we'll get into phthalates today. It's an attack on men. And so what are... You know, this is the messaging. It's the constant barrage of the messaging. And so what do the men do? Well, they go into the incel uh, side of the equation, or maybe they just completely reject the male part of themselves in totality. You know, and, and this is a byproduct of socially engineering self-loathing. I, I think that's part of the story. And I was going to bring it up. And, and Christine, you, you sort of triggered that. I mean, really, we're dealing with messaging that started to come down in the late 60s, early 70s. You know, 50 years. 50 years worth of ongoing messaging where ultimately the outcome is Male is bad. Male is toxic. The males must be neutered. And on the other side, we have the celebration of girl power, female power, and all these super fantastic female superheroes and badasses and completely flipping the script, right? So what do you think is going to be the outcome of something like that? If you're a guy and you're seeing all this imagery and you're feeling all this angst and you're looking around and you're saying, geez, 
And maybe I am worthless. Maybe I am bad. Maybe I am part of the problem. What do I do with that? Well, shit. Maybe I should just ditch it all together. Then you have the xenoestrogens kicking in. And then you have somebody like Dylan Mulvaney, who's held up and fetishized and says, if you do this, look what's going to happen. You're going to get all these sponsorships. You're going to become a media star. That is the carrot that they're dangling in front of an entire society of demoralized men. You want to get out of your oppression? You want to get out of your toxicity? Oh, Dylan Mulvaney. That, that, that is your trailblazer. He's going to show you how to do it. And we live in a copycat culture. Now, is, is everybody going to take the Dylan Mulvaney path? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think at some point there's going to be a very significant backlash. And part of what you're seeing with people like Andrew Tate, who is another kind of groomer, right? And Andrew Tate is getting into the heads of young men around the planet. And basically he's saying, look, you know, if you want to be a, a, a high quality male, you need status, you need power. And you need to be unapologetically male. Even if it looks like you're uh, a chauvinist pig. Right. Even if you, you know, dare to uh, approach the extremes of what it, what it might be to be a man. Right. And he's got plenty of followers. And there are young men around the planet that are listening to Andrew Tate. And there'll be others. And you're looking at some Gen Z, looking at some Gen A, mostly Gen Z. And they're going to flip the script. And you're going to see a very, very different version of young men or men in general, and they will not be apologetic and they won't, won't even approach anything remotely resembling Dylan Mulvaney. Dylan Mulvaney is Gen Z, by the way, just let you know about that. That's the other side of this. And then we get into this whole idea of like Christian nationalism and, and which is another part of the discussion, right? It, it's, it's the reaction to the times that we're in. And uh, we can talk about that moving forward. Mark M is here. What's going on, Mark M? Uh, let's see. Who else do we have? Inclusion with paid membership required. Dylan Mulvaney is discussing mockery. I agree with you. I agree with you. Dylan without a filter in 10 years would be a sight to behold. I don't think he has much of a filter right now period in the story crossfire cats here welcome mulvaney gains new sponsor every day now it's true yesterday was oil of a light it's true get rid of your junk and become a eunuch yep that is the most socially acceptable form of being a man now theoretically right that's what they're that's what they're promoting that's what they're promoting you know, it's really interesting. I go to ESPN every now and then, and even ESPN has completely changed its hierarchy of the news that they're they're promoting. I could go on ESPN right now, and I could show you that some irrelevant female athlete or some irrelevant female sport is going to – here, let me just put it to the test. 
is going to get the headlines on ESPN. It's like, oh, we need to be inclusive now. We need to be inclusive. It's funny. It's one of these days where it's not happening. <laughs> LeBron James is all the headlines today, of course. Nine times out of 10, I go to ESPN and uh, they're pushing. They're pushing some some obscure. Uh, it's like they were pushing the WNBA draft the other day. It's like, who cares? Who gives a fuck? All right, let me talk a little bit about um, Joe Bryath. I want to talk a little bit about Joe Bryath. Because I think the Joe Bryath story is, there's something about the Joe Bryath story in a lot of ways that speaks to this fetishization, promotion around somebody who is openly embracing uh, queer culture, gender bending, uh, trans tropes. How'd you like that? So let me get into his story a little bit, and I'm going to show you why I'm talking about Jabriath today. So Jabriath was born uh, Bruce Wayne Campbell. Bruce Wayne, how about that? Bruce Wayne Campbell, December 14th, 1946. Known by his stage name, Jabriath was an American rock musician and actor. He was the first openly gay rock musician to be signed by a major record label and one of the first internationally famous musicians to die of AIDS. So he's born in King of Prussia. Showed early musical talent for playing the piano and soon played organ in his local church. He's a Sagittarius. It was during his time, uh, this time his talents led him to being introduced to Eugene Ormandy as a child prodigy. When he was in high school, he became further interested in classical music and favorite composers such as Sergei Prokofiev. And he wrote the first two movements of his first symphony by his senior year in high school, but for reasons unknown, chose not to complete it. After graduating from Upper Marion High School, isn't that where uh, Kobe Bryant went to high school? Uh, in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania, Jabriath took an interest in folk music, partly inspired by seeing Peter, Paul, and Mary in concert several times. He briefly formed a folk group with the help of his music teacher, arranged for two identical twins, Marty and Grace, to join him. He named themselves the last three and played several regional shows in Pennsylvania before Marty and Grace departed for college. While Jabriath attended Temple University for one semester in the music program, he soon dropped out. He was drafted in the U.S. Army in the mid-60s, and went AWOL within months, renaming himself Jobriath Salisbury. He relocated to Los Angeles. So he was in Hair. Uh, after a company friend to the addition of the musical Hair as a piano player, he impressed the producer and director with his singing talents on the piano. He was soon cast by the director, Tom O'Horgan, into the leading role of Wolf, a character implied to be gay. He appeared in the legendary West Coast production at the Aquarius Theater. Interesting on Sunset Boulevard. Despite receiving positive reviews for his performances, he was fired from the production for upstaging the other actors. Reviews for his performances. Uh, after leaving the production in 1969, he joined the folk rock band Pigeon, which was then signed to Decca Records as their lead singer. 
pianist and guitarist. The band recorded a debut album originally titled First Flight from the Forest, which was retitled by their label as the self-titled Pigeon. And shortly after the album's release, the band released a single Rubber Bricks with prison walls before disbanding. Both were produced by Stan Farber at the time. He was traced by the military police and arrested, spending nearly six months in a military psychiatric hospital or suffering a breakdown. During this period, he began writing the songs that would lead to his next musical incarnation. Okay, this is where it gets interesting. Jerry Brandt, The Hype, and Jabriath Boone. So when I see Dylan Mulvaney, I see the ultimate manifestation of Joe Bryath downstream. And I'm going to show you why. In mid in mid-December 1972, Jerry Brandt, Carly Simon's former manager, overheard a demo tape being played by Clive Davis of Columbia Records. Davis rejected the tape as mad, unstructive, and destructive to melody, but Brandt was quick to step in. Jabriath later remarked that coming from a man who discovered both Patti Smith and Barry Manilow, so much for sanity and structure. Brandt located Jabriath in California, where he was living in an unfurnished apartment and working as a prostitute. In walked this beautiful creature dressed in white. I said, why don't you come out to Malibu and hang out? This became a feature of the mythology used to promote Jabriath and helps to explain the acrimony that followed the dissolution of their professional and personal relationship. Brand signed Jabriath, now calling himself Jabriath Boone, to Electra Records for a reported $500,000. Wrap your head around that figure. $500,000. This is early 1970s money. In what was allegedly the most lucrative recording contract of its time. Jabriath was signed to a two-album deal, a huge marketing campaign, and media blitz ensued, including full-page advertisements in Vogue, Penthouse, and Rolling Stone magazine, full-length posters on over 250 New York City buses, and a huge 41-by-43 billboard in Times Square, all featured the forthcoming debut album sleeve designed by noted photographer she Akita, which featured a nude Joe Bryant, made to resemble an ancient Roman statue. Plans were announced for a lavish three-night live debut at the Paris Opera that December at a cost of $200,000. Who is this sounding like? It's sounding like Dylan Mulvaney, who has his 365th day of being a woman at Carnegie Hall, which just happened, right? Jabriath is the guy that is the archetype. This is the archetype. Why is why is Jerry Brandt and Electra and all the people involved in this project? This is a fringe, an absolutely fringe character. Like, did they actually think? that America was just going to open their arms and give a big hug to Joe Bryath. Like, what? where is the mindset with this? It's like, well, you know, there was David Bowie. He's going to be America's David Bowie. Easily, he's going to be America's David. David Bowie was not that big in America. Like, David Bowie didn't get big in America until he did Young Americans. He 
like Ziggy Stardust was moderately successful in the United States. He was huge in England. It was, it was like, you know, American rock and roll audience were more like, Hey, you know, I'm into Led Zeppelin. I'm into the Rolling Stones. And, you know, David Bowie pushed a lot of buttons. Like, what the fuck is that? Why is that guy wearing makeup? So Bowie wasn't that big here. Like, you couldn't really bank on Bowie's American excess or success, excess and success, to be translated to Joe Bryant. It just, it, it really wasn't there. And yet they're they're shoving Joe Bryant onto the American public. This is what's happening. So it was a cost of $200,000 at the Paris Opera and subsequent tour of European opera houses. Jobriath informed the press that the show would feature him dressed as King Kong being projected upwards on a mini Empire State Building. This will turn into a giant spurting penis and I will have transformed into Marlena Dietrich. And they're promoting this guy? What is going on here? Electric concerned about the spiraling production costs postponed the Paris Opera Shows until February, later canceling them due to expense. Amidst the barrage of promotion, the debut album to Bryth, released on June 15, 1973, currently mostly positive reviews, Rolling Stone stated that Jobriath had talent to burn. Cashbox called it truly one of the most interesting albums of the year. Record World hailed it as brilliantly incisive, referring to Jabrath as a true Renaissance man who will gain a tremendous following. Esquire disagreed, calling it the hype of the year. The album was co-produced by Eddie Kramer and Jabrath featuring string arrangements by Jabrath, recorded at Olympic Studios with the London fucking Symphony Orchestra. They don't come cheap. Kramer described Jabrath in Mojo as a romantic soul. Really, he wanted orchestrations like old film music. Though he knew nothing about scoring, he bought a book on orchestration. Within a week, he'd come up with scores of a haunting quality. Peter Frampton is also credited on the album, although the contribution, his contribution is unclear. Peter Frampton, of course, with the Bowie connection, went to school with Bowie, played in the Glass Spiders, or the Glass Spider tour with Bowie. During this period, Brand continued making extravagant statements such as the Elvis, as Elvis, the Beatles, and Joe Bryath, and declaring that both he and Jabrath booked flights on Pan American's first passenger flight to the moon. Meanwhile, Jabrath declared himself rock's truest fairy, a comment that did little to increase his popularity at the time, but has since confirmed his status as the first openly gay rock singer to be signed to a major record label. Jabrath's debut public performance was made on television when Brandt secured him an appearance on the popular show, The Midnight Special. The costumes were designed by Jabrath. And the choreography was by Joyce Trissler of the Joffrey Ballet. Two songs were performed, I'm a M -M Man and Rock of Ages. The latter substituting for Take Me, I'm Yours, which was pulled after the producer objected to its overtly sadomasochistic theme. The long-awaited live performance finally came in July 1974 with two sold-out shows at New York's Bottom Line Club. Sales for the album, however, were poor, and it failed to secure a chart placing. Six months later, after release of the debut album, Creatures of the Street was released again, featuring Peter Frampton, as well as John Paul Jones and Led Zeppelin. The costumes were by Stephen Sprouse. The photography was by Gerard Mankiewicz. I think that's a Andy Warhol guy. Compiled from the extension sessions for a predecessor, it was launched without any fanfare or media promotion and failed commercially. 
didn't tour very much. Final show at the uh, University of Alabama ended in five encores and the fire department being summoned when the excited audience set off the alarm. So clearly there was something here with Mr. Joe Bryath, but what I really wanted to um, bring to, to the attention, right, of, of people listening and watching is the amount of money that was invested in him. It was, it was, it made no sense, no sense whatsoever. I mean, at that time, Ziggy Stardust was, was, I don't even think Ziggy Stardust had really happened yet. And maybe it was happening kind of simultaneously. You just couldn't look at, uh, at, at what Bowie was doing and say, oh yeah, we can replicate this. This guy's going to, this guy's going to be a cash machine. Oh, the American public. It's 1972. You know, 1972, 73. They gave him 500,000, half a million dollars in 1972 is a lot of money. You know, he and he and Brandt probably had some little side thing going on, no doubt. I mean, I think that's part of the story that's not really being talked about. But the amount of promotion. I mean, just think of that. You're somebody in New York City, you're walking around, you're like, the fuck is that? Who the fuck is that? Huge billboard, Times Square on buses. Ads everywhere, penthouse, vogue. Huge, huge advertising and marketing budget. It's because he was a fetish, right? There's some there, there's something about the idea of a fetish in that space. We'll use the word space again. That people become obsessed with, and they want to promote. And who knows really what else was behind the promotion? I mean, I think you know, wiser heads prevailed after the second album dropped. And they're like, man, we spent a shit ton of money on this uh, character. And the album didn't really do very well. Couldn't even, you know, get his song on Midnight Special because you know, the themes were too sadomasochistic. And, you know, and that was, uh, even though the 70s were exploratory, this guy was like really pushing the boundaries. And yet there was this huge investment around him. And the reason I bring it up is because I do think Dylan Mulvaney is the downstream manifestation of Jabriath, right? He's the downstream man. In fact, he was even singing uh, a Kate Bush song at his, at his, uh, by the way, I'm going to go on record right now. Dylan Mulvaney is going to cut an album. He's going to cut an album. He's going to have a whole CD. It's coming. And he will wind up being the downstream manifestation of Jabriah. It's going to happen. And Dylan Mulvaney is a fetish. He's a total fetish. And how did we get here? Well, part of it is accumulation. Right? So Jabriah fails, but the, the dream lives on forever. Right? They're, they're going to continue to promote you know, characters like Jabriath, partially because, you know, they've got some weird thing going on with their own psyche and their own sexuality, right? But there's also something deeper here. And I think when we get into the whole trans world, and I've talked about this 
many times before, is that what we're really talking about is the worship of Baphomet. This is this is the ultimate fetish. And when you look at Baphomet, what do you see? You basically see a trans deity. The classic picture of Baphomet. Tits in a dick. Right? You know you, the goat, the goat god with tits in a dick. This is what this is about. Ultimately, and some people will say, well, it's also a precursor to transhumanism. Sure. Absolutely. It is a precursor to transhumanism. Once you begin to, to um, chop and swap, right? Once you begin to chop and swap, you're, you're moving into transhumanism. You're altering the human form. And if you think about some of the things that have already gone into our bodies, they're also contributing to the transhuman factor. Let's 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 break off the discussion and talk about phthalates. So I wanted to cover them yesterday. We talked about xenoestrogens yesterday. This is from Harvard. This is a Harvard Q&A. Uh, this is from Russ Hauser, uh, Frederick Lee Hissop, professor of reproductive psychology, professor of environmental and occupational epidemiology, discusses a recent paper he co-authored with colleagues from Project Tender targeting environmental neurodevelopment risks that outlines health dangers of chemicals called orthothalates and calls for their elimination in consumer products. So this is not some wild-ass hair, harebrained conspiracy theory. This is not Alex Jones uh, beating his chest and uh, proclaiming frogs are gay. This is a Harvard peer-reviewed paper. The big three, three questions, three answers. So this is uh, Russ Hauser. It's a little like Richard Grossinger. What are orthothalates and where are they used? These chemicals generally referred to as phthalates are a family of compounds that's been widely used for well over 50 years. They have many properties that make them useful many different consumer products. One of the common uses is to soften vinyl plastic. Things like shower curtains, boots, and IV tubing. You get an IV, you're getting phthalates. Are made from the same hard white plastic that a plumber would use. But when you add about 30% by weight of it to a specific phthalate, you get soft, pliable vinyl plastic. Phthalates are also used in many personal care products, such as colognes, perfumes, soaps, and shampoos, in the coatings of some medications, and in vinyl tubing used for food processing. Isn't that interesting? People will say, well, avoid processed foods. Here's another reason why. I would estimate that phthalates are used in many hundreds, if not thousands, of different products. One of the primary, uh, one primary way that people can expose to phthalates is through diet. For example, it's been shown that these chemicals can leach into food from vinyl plastic equipment and materials, food preparation gloves, and food packaging materials. Phthalates can also migrate into indoor air and household dust from products like vinyl flooring and wall coverings. Numerous studies have found links between personal care product use and concentration of phthalates, metabolites, and urine. And phthalates are transferred from mother to fetus during pregnancy. Can you explain some of the health impacts of these chemicals? 
Phthalates have been very well studied in animal models. They've been shown to be anti-androgenic. In other words, they decrease testosterone. In studies with rats, it's been shown that if you dose the pregnant mother, the offspring have defects of the male reproductive tract. There have also been studies in humans that have found anti-androgenic effects on the development of male reproductive tract. In the last 10 years, epidemiologic studies have also shown that prenatal exposure to phthalates affects children's neurodevelopmental and neurobehavioral outcomes. It's going to rewire their brains. That was the focus of the new paper, which reviewed more than a dozen studies that have shown that maternal exposure to orthophthalates during pregnancy can impair child brain development and increase children's risk for learning attention and behavioral disorders. What has been done so far in the U.S. to reduce the use of orthophthalates and what more should be done? In 2017, Consumer Product Safety Commission banned the use of eight orthophthalates in children's toys. That's not that long ago. 2017. In child care, but in terms of their use in vinyl plastics and personal care products, there's currently no specific legislation. But other governmental agencies, manufacturers' decisions to reduce or eliminate the use of phthalates in other products is largely voluntary. Thus, there's still a long way to go. For some products, it's very doable to eliminate the use of orthophthalates. For example, there are other chemicals you can use as plasticizers to soften vinyl plastic. And manufacturers have already made substitutions in some products. However, we need to do study. We need to study. We do need to study what they're using for substitute chemicals, whether they're using other compounds that may also carry risks. With personal care products, there are other chemicals that can be used besides phthalates. For instance, nail polish frequently contained one of the phthalates called dibutyl phthalate, DPB. It kept nail polish from being brittle. And now there are formulations that don't contain DPB. I think the goal of phthalate elimination for consumer products is achievable. Part of the reason we're pushing for elimination is that it's very hard for consumers to know what products orthophthalates are in, especially personal care products. Isn't it an interesting how they promote fashion, right? They really promote fashion. They really promote personal care products. If phthalates in the product are considered part of the scent formulation, they don't need to be listed on the ingredient list because scents are considered proprietary. Even though some products do list phthalates, it's really hard for consumers to read the labels with these long chemical names. It's really hard for even a very knowledgeable consumer to buy products that avoid phthalates. So this is Russ Hauser, right? This is a guy who's done... Um, a lot of work and research on the whole uh, concept of phthalates and how they affect us. You got phthalates, you got the xenoestrogens. They're everywhere. They're, and what they are doing is they are mutating our species. This is what's happening. So when we see what's taking place now, it, 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 it's, it's like it's a big part of this quote unquote phenomena, right? It's a big part of it because people's genetics have been hacked. They've been hacked. So if they're disrupting testosterone in males, let's flip the switch. And let's say you're a female and 
uh, your estrogen is being affected, that you have more uh, estrogenic uh, agents that are being introduced by phthalates or xenoestrogens. As a female, what are you going to do? Your body's going to compensate and create more testosterone. That's what's going to happen. So you have men becoming more female, females becoming more male, and it really gets down into these, I guess we could call them free radicals in some ways, that enter into our body and hack our genetics, right? They hack our genetics. And, and, and so we have a group now of people who are much more biologically and genetically pliable. Let's throw in the programming, right? Let's throw in the programming now on top of it. Because if that's true, right, if you're having these kind of mimetic impulses or these mimetic signals inside of your body, and you are relating to things that are going to be quote unquote less traditionally male in some ways. And now all of a sudden you, you, you see these social signals and social switches, which promote that like, Oh, well, you don't feel like much like a, a male or, you know, you're kind of on the fence or yeah, it's your body. It's competing to figure out what the fuck you are. And all of a sudden, you have the programming kicking in and say, guess what? We can take care of that for you. Oh, yeah. That's not uncommon. Join, you know, join the crowd, join the crew, right? Join the crowd and join the crew. We'll take care of that for you. We'll sort out your biology because you feel a certain way. It's really the genetic mutation of the human. This is what's going on here. And, and he... He lays it out. Hauser lays it out. It is passed down through the mother, through through birth, like the the phthalates and the estrogenic you know, disruptors are coming through. Right? You're, you, people are being born into it. It's not just environmental. It's environmental as it comes through the mother. And this is a this is a big reason with how we got here. So we got that. That's number one. Number two is the promotion, ultimately, of, of Baphomet as a fetish. That's a big part of this whole thing. That's the unspoken part of it, right? So, you know, we're, gonna, we're, we're going to create an entire species uh, in service to our trans god. It's exactly the, the, the kind of the dark spiritual impulse around this. The other piece is through the social engineering, if you want to basically knock off a country, you got to take care of their men, right? You got to make sure that their men aren't going to be up to snuff and can, you know, withstand either external or internal threats. So that's part of it as well. So this is manifold. This has been a concerted attack. You get some of it in Europe, but I'll bet you, I'll bet you that there's probably going to be less phthalates and xenoestrogens in Europe. I'm just, maybe not, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it's all the same, right? But clearly here, that is the case. 
that's the case. Now, did they set out and say, hey, we're going to create phthalates and xenoestrogens and, you know, we're, we're, we're going to hack these people? I don't know. I don't know the answer to that question. The, the conspiratorial and paranoid side of me says that could be true. I mean, look, if they're going to, you get into this stuff, they're going to do experiments on, on mice. They always do it on mice and rats and they see what happens. Oh, oh look at that. Look at that. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it is. Let's do more of it. So maybe that's, maybe that's part of the mix too. But this is not just one thing, right? This is manifold. So I've been trying to kind of lay the groundwork as to how we got here. There's the chemical side of things, the genetic side of things. There's the fetish side of things. And there's also the social engineering part, which is we're going to make men in America self-loathing and weak. And that has been a pronounced, an absolutely pronounced um, program since the late 60s, early 70s. Back in the late 60s, I, I remember, I, I used to be a, a I used to work at this apartment complex. And uh, I've told the story before. And it was, it was right at the end of the 70s. And it was one of these apartment complexes that was set up for uh, singles. And some crazy shit went on in this place. And, uh, but there was this one guy that lived there. He was, a, he, he was a nice, he was a nice guy. And that was his problem. He was a nice guy. And he was a, a massive like record collector. He knew a lot about rock and roll, you know, all the fucking Beatles albums and everything. He was kind of a nerd. But one of the things he said, I'll never forget it. He said, you know, when I started to uh, date and get into uh, women, you know, the message I got was that they wanted me to be more sensitive. They wanted me to be more sensitive and they wanted me to, to listen more. They wanted me to be more in touch with my feelings. And I did that. He's, this is what he said. He said, I did that. And then when I did that, they didn't respect me. They didn't respect me. And I always felt like I was just their, you know, gay hairdresser. Uh, I'm paraphrasing that last part, but that's essentially what he was saying. And, and that was, that was the con, right? That was the bait. Oh, and you know, for some guys it worked, right? It was like, yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Tell me more. Oh, that's, you know, and the whole idea is like, yeah, I'm just going to do it to get laid. And then I'll just continue to be sort of, you know, <laughs> the, uh, the not so sensitive male, um, as I move on. Right. And some guys did that. Some guys played that role. And you can even see that in a movie like shampoo with Warren Beatty. That's, that's the role he's playing. Right. He's playing that role. And what's he doing? He's, he's getting laid. It's another movie. Like, be more like Warren Beatty. Yeah, Julie Christie and Goldie Hawn. But this guy had regret. You could hear it in his voice. He's like, I got conned. But that was the message. Oh, yeah. Just listen more. Be, get in touch with your feelings. We'll love you more. It's okay to cry. 
Look, there's some truth to some of that, right? There's some truth to some of that. And a lot of these guys were coming off of dads being hard asses. You know, the baby boomers were uh, the byproduct of people that were uh, the silent generation, right? I mean, I mean, before the silent generation, these were, what do they call them? The lost generation. These are, these are, these are people that fought in the fucking war. You know, these are military people. A lot of them are hard asses. So um, the men were like, oh, yeah, let me grow my hair long. Let me let my hair down. And I think that, uh, that, that, that the message for a while, you know, kind of worked. But it never went away. It never really went away. And uh, you could just tell that, that the guy was like, yeah, I got social engineered. I got conned. And nothing really came out of it. It didn't help that he kind of looked like a nerd. You know, he was he was definitely a music nerd. But he knew it, right? He understood. He understood what happened. It was a bait and switch. And the bait and switch got even worse. Now it's only socially acceptable if you're like Dylan Mulvaney. Oh, that. Oh, you you're that. Well, oh yeah, we'll love you. Yeah. You'll you'll get deals with uh, all these different sponsors and th th that's the message that they're sending. Really, that's the message that they're sending. Dylan Mulvaney is Joe Bryath. He is the downstream manifestation of Joe Bryath. And people are looking around, young, young men. Oh, look, he's such a success. Look what he did. Is it going to work, right? Is Dylan Mulvaney going to be, uh, you know, crowned king of the world? Well, for the time being, he's queen of the world. For the time being. All right, what do we got? Uh, 1034. So we got about seven minutes left. You know, I went down that Alyssa Hirescheid. Um, I went down that rabbit hole a little more yesterday. Holy shit. Her father, you know, his uh, last name is Gordon. So her father uh, took over for the uh, family business, Gordon Jewelers, which was a huge business, ran it into the ground. He ran it into the ground. They wound up selling their share, which was like 56%. And um, I think Zales took it over. But think about that. I mean, that's big money, huge money. So Lisa Hirescheid doesn't, she doesn't really understand what it's like to really have to suffer in some ways. So for her, uh, you know, blowing uh, Bud Light's fortune is nothing. Because that's the world she comes from. She has no understanding whatsoever about building capital and fortune. She inherited it. Alyssa Hirescheid, Alyssa Gordon, was born on third base in life. And when you're born on third base in life, you have no understanding whatsoever about the value of things. Period. End of story. That's where she comes from. And there's more to it than that as well. Maybe I'll get into some of that tomorrow.
All right. Looks like uh, my cable guys are here. So I got to deal with them so I can continue to have a strong signal. Thanks for being here. And I hope you enjoyed our, our presentation. We'll do part three tomorrow, but I'm going to, tomorrow I'm going to bring in a movie. You guys like it when I break down movies. So tomorrow I'm going to break down the movie that I think is the skeleton key to all of this. And it's not to Wong Fu with love. Trust me on that. All right. Use your head in order to discern what's real. Your heart to set what's possible. I'm Robert Phoenix. Have yourself an absolutely fantastic day. And um, take care and bye for now.